From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. This month, your administration uh, directed federal agencies to end racial sensitivity training that addresses white privilege or critical race theory. Why did you decide to do that, to end racial sensitivity training? And do you believe that there is systemic racism in this country, sir? I ended it because it's racist. I ended it because a lot of people were complaining that they were asked to do things that were absolutely insane, that it was a radical uh, revolution that was taking place in our military, uh, in our schools, all over the place, and you know it, and so does what, everybody what, what else. Radical, and he would know. What is oh, radical totally about racist. racial sensitivity training? President Trump and Fox News' Chris Wallace are talking about critical race theory. The topic came up briefly in the first presidential debate. But what is critical race theory? It's such an academic term. Wallace called it racial sensitivity training, which is easier to digest, but is that what it really is? Does this sound like a fruitful exercise in equality? Here's what happened at Sandia National Laboratories, which designs America's nuclear weapons. In one case at the Sandia National Nuclear Laboratories, uh, they held a, a, a segregated training session, a segregated re-education camp for white male executives, uh, where they took them away for a weekend and they were teaching them how to deconstruct their white male culture. Uh, how to accept their complicity in, in white supremacy, uh, and then force them to write letters, uh, including some letters of apology uh, to women and people of color, uh, all under this idea of uh, kind of denouncing their own whiteness and doing better to join this kind of uh, critical race theory, honestly, an indoctrination cult. That's Christopher Rufo a visiting fellow for Heritage's domestic policy studies and our guest today. The concept of these taxpayer-funded critical race theory trainings entered the mainstream conversation after Rufo released an expose. His investigation led to an outpouring of other examples from whistleblowers in the federal government who shared their own experiences. Today, Rufo will share more examples of what he found and help us understand the destructive roots of critical race theory and how it's dividing America. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you. Chris, I wanted to start out by asking if you could explain at a 101 level what critical race theory is, because it sounds pretty academic. Yeah, you know, it, it is academic. The origins of it are in the academy. And uh, critical race theory is the idea that uh, the United States is a fundamentally racist country uh, and that all of our institutions, uh, including the law, uh, culture, uh, business, the, ec the economy, um, are all, you know, designed to maintain white supremacy. And the critical race theorists argue that uh, all of these institutions are, in a sense, uh, beyond reforming. Um, they really need to be kind of completely dismantled uh, in order to uh, liberate uh, the oppressed people. And, um, and it sounds extreme. And I, I think the best way to think about it is um, you take the old Marxist concept of the proletariat uh, and the bourgeoisie or, you know, the, the op oppressed and the oppressor. 
Uh, but instead of looking at it in an economic terms, as Marx did, uh, you change it and you kind of graft uh, the new identity politics and you think of it in racial terms. So instead of the poor and the rich, it's essentially the white and the people of color uh, are the two dynamics. And this is the new oppressor and oppressed. And all of the old kind of Marxist kind of dialectic is really just reinterpreted through the lens of race. And that's really at the heart of critical race theory. And then what you see is that that basic academic concept is repackaged in diversity trainings, articles, academic literature, um, HR programs. Um, but that's really uh, the kind of key core philosophical concept at its heart. So that we're all sort of unconsciously racist or biased in some way. Yeah, well, e even even worse than that, according to the critical race theorists, uh, according to the critical race theorists, uh, these institutions were designed in many cases explicitly to uphold white supremacy. And then over time, they've shifted where we don't have kind of explicit racism, slavery, then segregation. And they basically say, uh, you know, oppression hasn't been abolished. Oppression has uh, simply become more sophisticated, become more subtle, become more insidious. So they're, you know, make the argument that um, we have a system today that is akin to slavery, um, but it's more kind of implicit. It's more subconscious. It's more uh, kind of hidden. Um, and uh, again, the, the constant is that they, they hold is that uh, kind of racism and white supremacy uh, are constant. They're, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere at all times. Uh, it's just up to the kind of intelligentsia or the kind of vanguard uh, to understand it, uncover it, uh, and demolish it. So you did a really big thing here, and your investigative reporting showed everyone how this theory is infiltrating our federal government. Can you give us some examples of what you found? Exactly. So critical race theory, the concept that has been percolating in academic circles, um, really in force since the 1990s, um, it, it used to be that you could dismiss it. You could say, well, that's just some, you know, some some academics at at uh, at, at universities that are doing this stuff. Um, but what's happened in, in the subsequent years is that it's migrated from the academy into uh, the nonprofit sector, into the philanthropy sector, into the education sector, and into the bureaucracy, so into the actual public government sector. And what I uncovered in my investigative reporting uh, is that uh, critical race theory has really become the default operating ideology of the federal government. And uh, I uncovered a series of critical race theory based trainings um, at uh, more than a half dozen, actually, you know, more than at this point, more than a dozen uh, government agencies where in one case at the Sandia National Nuclear Laboratories, uh, they held a, a segregated training session, a segregated re-education camp for white male executives. Uh, where they took them away for a weekend and they were teaching them how to deconstruct their white male culture, uh, how to accept their complicity in, in white supremacy, uh, and then forced them to write letters, uh, including some letters of apology uh, to women and people of color, uh, all under this idea of uh, kind of denouncing their own whiteness and doing better to join this kind of uh, critical race theory, honestly, an indoctrination cult. And other examples were similar. They were um, really expounding on the kind of most toxic and divisive elements of critical race theory, uh, singling out people on the basis of race, judging people on the basis of race, in some cases, even harassing people on the basis of race. 
um, which is not only kind of awful and distasteful, but uh, it's also likely illegal as a violation of the Civil Rights Act. So uh, after all of this reporting, I kind of hammered away at this agency after agency after agency, uh, predominantly using whistleblower documents um, that showed exactly what was happening. Um, uh, and then appearing on uh, Laura Ingram and then Tucker Carlson for a feature segment. Um, I put out the call and uh, the president answered the call. And uh, the White House put out a brilliant executive order, basically saying you can no longer teach um, the kind of toxic and divisive concepts of critical race theory uh, in the government, in the military, and also in corporations uh, that are federal contractors. Another thing I think we should really highlight further is that these trainings are taxpayer funded, and there are agencies that are profiting off of this. How much do these trainings cost, and are there specific figures that are well known for these types of things? Yeah, it, it's a huge industry. I, I think, you know, 15 years ago, I believe they estimated it as an $8 billion industry. Um, I, I imagine that it's 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 grown, uh, you know, sizably uh, on kind of my back of the envelope estimate is it's probably a twenty five billion dollar industry, um, diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, and some of these trainers build the federal government just absurd amounts. Um, a, a man named Howard Ross, uh, who's been highlighted in my reporting, uh, according to federal records, uh, has billed the government um, more than five uh, million dollars. Uh, in the past 15 years for these kind of trainings, uh, including stuff like a $500,000 training uh, for NASA called a Power and Privilege Sexual Orientation Workshop. Uh, so this has uh, become a lucrative business for, uh, you know, essentially race trainers uh, that uh, are brought in um, to government agencies to uh, essentially teach the tenets of critical race theory. Uh, to denounce uh, people on the basis of those theories um, and then uh, collect uh, checks at the back end. And, you know, needless to say, none of this has a basis in scientific fact. Um, the evidence for many of these uh, convictions uh, is non-existent. Um, and in fact, uh, a study from Harvard University uh, of 800 organizations over a time frame of 30 years found that diversity trainings do nothing uh, to actually bring people together to improve working conditions. Uh, and in some cases, they actually uh, harm the workforce. And my own reporting can, uh, can kind of confirm that, where uh, people are, in some cases, joining public service. They want to work for the government to, to you know, deliver uh, services to the public, uh, to do a public kind of, to do the public good. Uh, and then they find themselves in the midst of these um, extremely ideological um, struggle sessions, uh, and and they're intimidated, they're scared, they're angry, they're hurt, um, and employees of all racial backgrounds uh, have told me um, this has no place in the government, and thank you for getting rid of it. So can you speak a little bit on how critical race theory is infiltrating not just the federal government, but other institutions? As a mom, I know that things have popped up on my radar that I just can't believe. Yeah, it, it, it's everywhere. And I think that um, we've kind of fallen asleep, uh, unfortunately, as these things have pervaded all of the institutions. I mean, corporations are going kind of full scale into this. Um, they're now kind of, you know, the famous woke corporations or woke capital, where they're, you know, highly profitable companies, predominantly in the major cities that are now kind of 
really just falling all over themselves in order to uh, kind of seek the approval of the uh, progressive media and progressive philanthropic sector uh, and the kind of progressive activists um, that, that, that really have a stranglehold on culture and power in the large cities. Um, but I think even worse, you have um, this is really kind of gone viral within the education system. And uh, I, I've seen both uh, and as a reporter firsthand, but also as an observer of other, other people's reporting, um, that public schools are now teaching students, um, you know, as young as second and third grade, that um, whiteness is synonymous with evil. Um, that uh, the police um, systematically hunt down and, and murder uh, black men deliberately, um, and all these other kind of uh, highly charged political uh, uh, kind of convictions um, that they're teaching as if they're kind of uncontested fact. And I think what we've found too as with the pandemic, as parents are having a chance to observe what's happening in the classroom via Zoom or other uh, teleconferencing uh, software, they're realizing just how extreme some of the education has become. And, um, you know, I, I, I've seen it even in, in, in among friends and family um, where uh, you have children that are very young that are being um, essentially indoctrinated into a political ideology. Um, and I'll, I'll share one funny experience. A, a friend of mine who actually uh, grew up in Czechoslovakia during the Soviet times, uh, she told me that the um, the political indoctrination in schools and places like uh, Seattle is actually worse than when she was growing up in the Soviet Union. And she said, because in the Soviet Union, we all knew secretly um, that this stuff was kind of BS. Um, but the problem here is that they really believe it. And uh, I, I think it's a, a wake up call to parents that, uh, you know, they need to start getting activated, mobilized. Uh, and pushing back against this uh, ideology that is being foisted upon their children. Oh boy, that's really scary. That's scary stuff right there. And you mentioned some of the corporations and the woke industry. People think of large corporations like the Googles and the Amazons, but it's smaller corporations too. I, I mean, I have friends and family who are concerned that their smaller organizations are going to force them to participate in something like this and that they'll eventually be forced to, you know, say their political leanings before they're hired for a job. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that, that's certainly, you know, not out of the question and, uh, and, you know, is, is probably happening in, in many places already. And I, I think it is really indicative of the kind of political environment that we find ourselves in. And I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I have many friends that, uh, that are kind of even moderate conservatives, kind of establishment, uh, you know, kind of simple, uh, you know, middle of the road. And, you know, they're, they're, they're terrified. They feel like they can't speak out. They feel like there'd be consequences at work. And, um, this is a major problem, and this is something that we need to work on. Um, you know, I, I think there might be some legislative changes, but it's really a cultural change uh, where, you know, you have essentially um, half the country has been effectively, um, you know, uh, effectively shut out of expressing their political opinions. And uh, this is a major cultural problem, and I think it's going to require a much greater effort uh, on our on our behalf to change. Um, because ultimately, it's not good for the country. You want to have um, kind of two robust competing uh, political philosophies, political ideologies, 
um, that are really working to balance our system. And uh, wherever you come down, I'm, I'm a, on the conservative side, of course. Um, I, I think that you want to have a, an intelligent and viable and responsible opposition uh, because that actually improves uh, life and improves governance for all of us. And uh, we're, we're rapidly losing that. Um, and I think we need to really kind of shore up our system and, and try to change that dynamic. Christopher Rufo, thank you so much for your important work on this issue. And after the debate a few weeks ago when this came up, I really felt that there wasn't enough time for President Trump to really adequately explain what was going on. So we really appreciate you being able to join us and break that down. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think that, you know, the president did something uh, quite stunning, quite amazing and and quite powerful. Uh, And uh, I I think that uh, it's really set a new course for what can be done on this issue. And uh, I'm optimistic that, you know, I'm now exploring a number of different avenues, uh, both as an investigative reporter, uh, but also uh, working with uh, lawyers and legal foundations um, to try to solidify some of these gains and try to protect people from a toxic, divisive, and uh, frankly, hateful training sessions uh, in workplaces all over the country. And that's it for this week's episode. I'm going to link to Chris's expose in our show notes in case you want to read further. And I also want to link to a recent virtual heritage event that Chris spoke on about how the left is failing to address homelessness and conservative solutions. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Heritage Explains Facebook page, and Heritage's YouTube page. We put our episodes everywhere because we want to make it easier for you to listen and share. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by John Pop.